Today, you're going to meet someone who's lived on the road for over 21 years with over 530,000 miles on the Harley-Davidson Electric Glide. He doesn't consider himself an adventure rider or a traveler. He refers to himself as a drifter. And when you hear him speak about life on the road, concerns that he has are probably nothing like the concerns you think he should have. We're going to talk about what it's like to live simply on the road, and it's probably not at all what you picture. We're going to talk about how he makes money on the road and how he survives, and the fact that he may be houseless, but he's not homeless. And coming up after that, we're going to speak with Brett Tact from Puget Sound Safety, off-road rider training for motorcyclists. Brett's going to talk to us all about adventure motorcycle boots, whether you need them to begin with or whether your hiking boots will suffice, what to look for when you're buying adventure boots, and a quick test that you can give an adventure motorcycle boot in the store to see if it's really worthy of off-road use. We have a checklist for buying motorcycle boots and some great tips for women looking for adventure motorcycle boots that simply don't exist on the market. Well, there is a solution for that. This is Nick Sanders. I'm Jason Spafford. And I'm Lisa Morris. My name is Austin Vince. This is Rob Beach. I'm Rachel. This is Ed March. This is Glenn Hickstead. This is Dr. Gregory W. Fraser. This is Dave Barr. This is Alan Carl. This is Tiffany Coates. Hello, here is Herbert Schwartz. I am Brett Tax. This is Zoe Cano. This is Nathan Millward. My name is Graham Hoskins. This is Joe Rust. Hi, this is Jeremy Craker. I'm Simon Thomas. And I'm Lisa Thomas. It's Simon Pavey here. Hi, this is Grant Johnson. This is Robert Wicks. This is Elisa Workman. <laughs> this is Ted Simon. You're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. This episode is brought to you in part by Max BMW, serving adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too, which I highly recommend. That's at maxbmw.com. And Best Rest Products, home of Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, when you're on the road, or off the road for that matter, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system and can fill a flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA with a five-year warranty. www.cyclepump.com. That's cyclepump.com. <laughs> Scotty Carricks has been living on the road from his motorcycle for over 21 years. He started out just going for a little bit at a time and then went for a little longer and a little bit longer and then eventually went, sold everything off and decided to stay on the road for good. So when I say he's living on the road, he's literally living on the road. He has no home. He's not homeless per se, houseless. Scotty talks candidly about what it's really like to live on the road, the good and the bad talks about finances and how he makes his money and certainly something I didn't expect to hear is such a, a big topic friendship making friends on the road well, my name's Scotty I write under my pen name it's Scooter Trainer Scotty because I write for a few magazines and stuff and um, what I do well I've been on the road, living off an old motorcycle for 21 years now. But during that time, I haven't stayed any one place more than two months. I travel the whole of the U.S., Canada, and Mexico. Let's see, people usually ask what I did before this. And uh, before all this, you know, when I was young, younger, I was a contractor. Roofing contractor, I was in that business for 22 years. And I, uh, I had a three-bedroom house, two cars, and a truck, and a uh, big front yard, big backyard, nice furniture, TV, VCR, remote control, all the paid channels, you know, all that stuff. And that stuff just didn't work for me, man. Well, a lot of my friends it worked for. But for me, you know, I just, you know what happened was I would work all week at my job, and I'd do the work around the house I couldn't do in the week because I was busy working. It didn't work for me, man. And so one day, I, after a lot of thought stuff, I uh, went out to my truck and I put my bike, I always had a pad of bike, 
I put my bike, my my tools, and some clothes in there, and I drove away, man. I left that stuff sitting there. And uh, I bought a little Airstream trailer for $1,100, an old one. I pulled it over and stuffed it on a friend of mine's property, charged me 150 bucks a month uh, to keep it there. This was in San Diego where the rents are high, too. I got rid of that big GMC truck because it was a gas hog, and I bought one of them Toyota mini trucks everybody used to drive back then um, for $1,400, no, $1,500 and change. I drove that for five years, fixed a few things on it, and that threw me into an early retirement because all my bills were now, including for telephones, before cell phones, were under, it was under 160 bucks a month. So all of a sudden, man, I was working too much and making too much money, which didn't make sense. And so I cut my workload back, began to work two to three weeks, and I'd take two months off. Then I got bored. Then I started trying a lot of different things, and I started going a lot of different places. Before, I hadn't felt like I had a life. When I had when I had the big house, when I had time off, I didn't even know what to do with it. I mean, I'd learned to work, but I hadn't really learned to recreate. And so I began to try a lot of things, and I hit on motorcycle travel. I had friends who took trips, and I began to go with them, and then I began to go alone. And uh, my travels got further and further. And then I think it was in 1991 I set out for my first month-long trip and came back. And after that, back to San Diego, and after that, I was gone the next two summers, all summer long. And you know what happened? Jim had run out of money, and I'd keep going. <laughs> and I don't know how that worked. I kind of found the road to be self-perpetuating. Once I stopped, it was hard to get back on it. But as long as I stayed on it, it wasn't hard to keep going. And uh, so I did that for two years. And in the spring of 94, and you know what happened, man? I started hating coming home. Then I started hating being home. And uh, so in the spring of 94, I took off to see if I could stay gone for a year. Now, granted, my landlord, when I was gone, I would turn my trailer off. And he charged me 30 bucks a month just to leave my truck and my trailer and my tools there. So that was right. That was cool. In the spring of 95, I came back, liquidated everything I owned, and I've been on the road ever since then. But I'm going to tell you something, man. It was not a uh, hardship. It's just that, you know what, man? My spirit came alive out here, and it was, and, and, and I just couldn't go back. And, but it was not a life of hardships, of sleeping on a picnic table, you know, like under a tarp in the rain that I was looking for. I was trying to engineer. I was hoping to engineer a way that would work, that was comfortable enough, dare I say comfortable enough, to work as a long-term lifestyle, you know, and uh, that was that's not been easy to achieve. That wasn't at first, but as a young man, you're you're um, you know resilient when you're young, right? So when when you like you mentioned that that's, that's a bit of a transition you did. You got rid of your house and you went and got the trailer and you decided to have some some more free time and just getting rid of possessions, things that cost you more money. So it didn't happen overnight for you. This this took a period of time. Oh, yeah, it was a slow process, and it took me quite a while to get used to living in camps like I do. Now I'm not comfortable in houses. That happens to all the drifters. I've seen it. It's not just me. Describe what you mean, because I remember you mentioned about being, you know, you're seeing four walls and a, and a lid, sort of. Describe what that <laughs> feeling is like. <laughs> all the drifters I've known, there's only a small handful of us that I know, and there's only a few that are really long-term, you know, seriously out here and not going back. Um, but I've been in houses in California and in, and in Louisiana where there was like three or four of us staying at the house, at somebody's house. And there's empty rooms in the house and everybody is outside. You get to where the freedom, I don't know, it compensates you. You know, I don't know. I, I can't explain it. But it happens to everybody. I got a friend who started hitting the road a lot. He's kind of a yuppie. He's part yuppie, you know. But he's a good friend of mine. <clears throat> he wanted to start hitting the road and camping more. He, he's got a $400 tent, right? Like, it's like, oh, we're not worthy, Chuck. But, <laughs> but he began to, he came with me a little bit, and he began to take trips and stay in his camp a lot, and he began to have a harder time staying in houses, too. So it happens to everybody. So, but I'll tell you what, once you don't want a house anymore, once you have no desire for one, man, it sure does free you up. But most people are going to say, what about when you get old? Are you not going to want to get to a point where you settle down somewhere? Well, my last friend who asked me that, he said, which was recently, what are you going to do when you get old? I said, what are you going to do? You stop working for three months, you lose everything that you work for, bro. Now, some people got retirement plans, but I've never had the mentality to work all my youth up, up and then you retire. And I'm not sure that at the end of your life, it's really the time to start living. You know, you don't live that long. Some of my friends tell me, they're like, I'm getting old, i got to get serious. I'm like, 
me too. I got to go do more stuff while I still can. <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, well, it, it is a school of thought, isn't it? Because I mean, you think about it. You you work your best years to try and build up your retirement, and then how many times you hear of this happening with people? Then they retire and they either die or they're in such poor health they can't do much other than stay in a in a nice house and have a nice car that they drive once a month when they you know they go to the doctor's office. Oh yeah, and I've stayed with a lot of retirement in a lot of retirement communities because I migrate south in the winter, and I've spent time with lots of retired people. I've seen what it's like. And uh, a lot of them, some of them are very happy with it, and a lot of them are not. A lot of them are very miserable with it, and I couldn't tell you exactly why. You know, I've spent time with them in Mexico and Arizona. They all come down there to all these retirement in Florida, a lot of retirement communities. I've hung with them. I do know this much. I've watched some guys I know are old, and they're still very active. They're the minority, though. And I've watched what the difference is. I got one friend who comes camps with me every year at Sturgis. He's a ski instructor in Vail. He bicycles in Vail, Colorado. He bicycles, oh, about 18 or 20 miles a day. He's a kind of an exercise junkie. And he's 72, man. Three hip replacements so far. Wow. And he's a ski instructor. Yeah. And what these guys tend to do, what I notice is they don't stop doing the things they always did. They don't say, oh, I'm, I'm too old to be camping or sleeping in it on the ground anymore. They never say stuff like that. They just keep doing the things they've always done. Another thing is I notice they tend to start taking care of their health a little better, eating a little better, and a lot of them uh, take up at least some cardio exercise. Because I want to be that way. I don't want to be the one whose you know, health is failing and you can't do anything anymore. That's what I you know, one, one question that I wanted to ask you was about living outdoors. Um, do you find that living outdoors makes you a fitter, healthier person? I don't know. I'm 55, and I'm in extremely good health. I had a 20-year-old kid just the other day tell me he wants to look like me. <laughs> I'm kind of a gym rat a little bit, you know, not totally, but I mean... Scotty, you've been on the road for over 20 years now, as you said. Um, you're living on the road. Uh, but the first thing that pops up, of course, everybody wants to know about is how do you make your money? How, how do you go out and live on the road? You didn't leave with a, a massive chunk of money. I mean, some people have sold their homes, you know, and they have, they have a big chunk of money they can live off for a few years. But you said you didn't do that. You sort of cut your income back and, and uh, made a little less money. How do you make money on the road? Oh, that's a question people always ask me. Well, the first part of it's simple, is I don't have any bills to speak of. I've got this little Walmart telephone here that's pretty cheap, and that's it. And so, in truth, I just don't, we just don't need to work much. I work about a month a year, and uh, I rat pack the money, and then I just live on it for time. A lot of people think I'm broke all the time. That's just not true. Most of the time, I have more spending money than I did before. That's really interesting. I just asked you about income, and the first thing you went to was the fact that you don't have the expenses. And I, and I think that's interesting for a, a mindset, you know, is, is that uh, when it, when it, most people just think of bringing more money in so they can pay all their massive bills, whereas the first thing you went to there was you don't have bills. <laughs> I don't. I don't have a single one, except for this Walmart phone, which I buy the three-month cards on it for 130 bucks, I think, something like that. So... <laughs> Um, what I found, this is my experience, is that it's like a scale gym. You, in one side, you've got stuff, and in the other side, you have freedom. And the more you put in one, the more the scale tips the other way, the more you give of the other one. And so there's no actual gain. It's a trade. You see what I'm saying? And so, but it's, but there's a, it's adjustable for the individual. There's a lot of gray area. You can be in between. I'm a little extreme on, on one end, you know. But uh, only a blind man will believe he's going to have both. My rich friends tell me their stuff owns them. They're constantly running around trying to hold their empires together. Now, I don't know what it's like to be a trillionaire or whatever. My rich friends are like millionaires, you know. I know actually quite a few of them. I've just tipped it the other way. And uh, I'm going to tell you what. Back when I had that house, this may seem a little far out to you, but I had this idea that my spirit existed. It's not that far out. But my spirit existed to maintain the journey of my stuff to make possible the journey of my stuff. And I worked all the time to take care of my stuff, man. But somewhere that turned around and I came to this idea that this stuff exists to make possible the, the journey of the spirit, right? 
And uh, so now I don't do any bad relationships with stuff. My stuff's really important to me. I've got a bike sitting here with an engine tore out right now in Utah at a friend's house because I've had a problem with it. My stuff's very important to me. But uh, I just don't want any excess. If something, I don't do bad relationships with stuff anymore. If something doesn't serve me, I don't serve it. Everything a person has, you got to maintain. I don't care if it's something, if it's a little trinket sitting on a shelf over in the corner of your house. You got to dust that thing. You got to clean that thing. When you move, you need a U-Haul truck for all this stuff. You need to rent a big place for all this stuff. Everything has its price, and um, and if it's something that serves me, it's totally worth the price. I'm putting a bunch of money into this right now, but if it's not serving my spirit in some actual way, I let it go quickly and without regret. My old girlfriend used to say it was shocking to watch me get rid of stuff because <laughs> I'll throw it in the trash. I don't care if it's some brand-new, nice little computer. I'll set it night. If I don't need it, I got a laptop computer in here. It's only because I'm a writer. If I wasn't writing anymore, I'd set that thing on the nearest trash can or give it to the nearest person that wanted it just to get its problems out of my life. Everything comes to me with a little handful of problems, right? And if I take on its benefits, I also get its burdens. And there used to be I would let all these things into my life, and life became very burdened. It became one big burden. I'm running around trying to maintain my stuff all the time. This is along the lines of Henry David Thoreau's Walden Pond, where um, he says the same thing. Somebody offers him a doormat, I think it was, and he had to really think about it and think, well, the doormat would be great, but do I want the responsibility of having to take this thing outside and beat it to clean it every day and the time that it's going to take? Does it, you know, does it counter the benefits that I'm going to get? And he just has to say, no, it doesn't. So keeping life simple and real. And, and I think it's interesting because that point that you just made there about when you get something, you're taking on the responsibility of, of ownership, which which is the maintenance or whatever the case is, even figuring out where you're going to store it or keeping it safe or keeping it out of the rain, whatever the case is, you do take on something with that. And, and I think it's a great point that you bring up, but I'll take you back to it. How do you make money though, even for those small oh. things that you need, like fuel in your bike insurance? Of course, of course. I didn't get to that part yet. Mostly I'm a roofer by trade. Obviously I'm a journeyman roofer. Once in a while I'll roof somebody's house if I meet them along the way, but I don't do that much anymore. And, um, but mostly anymore, I work at the big motorcycle rallies. I tried the carnivals when I was new to this. When I was new to this, I was really freaked out about how I was going to get by. You know, <laughs> I was trying everything. It was a big deal, and the carnivals weren't any didn't work for me. And I ended up working at the motorcycle rallies. You know, the big motorcycle rallies, the Harley thing has become such a big scene now that the the, the rallies have become a multi-billion-dollar industry. And when you go to them, they have all these vendors set up, and. Um, in any of those shows, there's two scenes. There's this, the scene where the guy comes, he's on vacation, he's going to get drunk, do a few burnouts, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and uh, there's this behind-the-scenes scene of the people who come to put the thing on and make it happen. And, and that's a very fun, interesting scene it's in itself. A lot of these vendors know each other, and uh, there's all these feelings, and they get to know you. And, and so what happens is you can come in off the road, work for a really hard week, and uh, get your money and line your pocket with some green freedom and hit the road, you're unemployed again. And maybe they work at the, you work at the next show in some other state when the date comes up. I work usually three or four shows a year. They're about a week at a time. That usually makes me all the money I need for the year. You're also a writer, though? Yeah, but they don't pay me enough for that to really make it. That's not a part of my living. I do that more because it's a passion of mine. It's my art. You know, I'm not making enough of that to be... I write adventure stories, mostly. Do you find that um, other people you've met on the road, you've, you must know quite a few people now, that do similar style life uh, than, than what you have or, or that you've run into, do you find that everybody has to find their own way to make a living, and is it always different, or do some people sort of fall into the same things over and over? Uh, different people do it... These different guys do it different ways. To me... To me, there's um, four things that are that have been necessities and uh, that have been problems that would have sent me home had I not worked these things out. And these other guys have worked them out in their own ways. One of them is home. When you when you when you're tired and you want to go home, and I'm I'm also very much a homebody. I spend a lot of time at home, man. I usually don't get out of my place till 11. If I'm working on a computer, I might be there till 2 in the afternoon. So I had to have a decent home to go to. Um, the other one is being able to get clean every day. I know every way that there is to get the shower and, and how to get this, the free showers from the truck stops. I have a video up about that. It's good or Tramp Scotty. I got a truck stop video, how to get them for free at the truck stops. But what I generally do is hook up with a YMCA or a gym, 
so I can get their stay clean every day. The other thing is a social life, some kind of a social life, man. Um, and then the last thing, really, that I've noted is when we come into a new town, the guys who've been drifters for a long time, they have kind of a set uh, routine that they do. I've come in often with a guy like Billy, this guy Mike I used to travel with years ago, and when we get to the town, they already have things they're going to do. Because what happens is you can go to a town, you can stand around, and you're like, okay, there's nothing happening here. Because, I mean, one of the things that people want to travel don't realize, I mean, they're thinking of the freedom. The fantasy, of course, is good, but it's not going to be quite like the reality. Thinking of all this freedom, I have the freedom to throw a dart at the map and just go wherever it lands. And fantasy, that's fine. Reality, it really kind of sucks. You come into a town, you don't know anybody. Everybody's going home. They're, everybody's in work mode. They're going home at night. What are you going to do there? You're going to be moving to new towns. You don't know anybody. You know, it's like moving to a new town where you don't know anybody. So what happens is you have to learn to meet people quickly, make friends quickly. All the directors I've known have, have honed their social skills to the absolute best of their personal ability. They've been forced to. And uh, so I have a routine when I come into a town that I do. And so I can come into pretty much any place and make it my home. These four things uh, have taken time to work out. I've noticed that every guy has done them differently. None of them that I know use the same methods I do. They solve the same problems. So, How do you meet people quickly? I've learned the art of hanging out. I remember early on being so lonely out in Palm Springs in the winter, hanging out there in the winter, man. And uh, I would start walking up to people on the street and just talking to them. And you know, the thing is, is everybody wants to have friends. I've found that to be very effective. I heard it, I read somewhere that everybody is afraid of everybody else and people are so busy feeling their own fear, they don't realize the other person's. And I think there's some truth in that. And so when I walk up and I'm all of a sudden your friend, uh, more often than not, people are receptive. They want to have friends too. So, but I hang out a lot. Now, one of the things that's also important is to go to a lot of events. People come to an event looking with a whole different attitude. They come in and let their hair down, get their woes, have some friends, and meet some people. See, but you try. You try going to different towns. I go to quite a few. When I get into a town, I'll find out. I'll go to big events. I'm at Sturges every year. I've been to like five or six rallies this year. Sometimes I'll go to the, to the pippy rainbow gathering thing or, you know, I'll pick something out. When I get to a town, I'll keep an eye out for what's going on in the area. I'll go to little bike runs or pig roasts or anything that's going on. I'll go and meet people there. And when you read my stories, you see that there's people, I'm meeting people all the time. This guy here just drove 200 miles up to pick up my broken bike and bring me back to his house. He's got a garage here, and we're doing a bunch of heavy engine work. He called me up to come get me. He's an old friend of mine. So you meet people everywhere because you try. Try being home, truly homeless, no place you're going to sleep, dirty and friendless in different towns around the country and see how long you feel like doing that. <laughs> you know it's, what I mean? You, you know, well, yeah, because you mentioned that the fact that it's it's sort of a dream that you look at. And you go, oh, I'll just travel from place to place, and everything's going to be great. But the reality of it is, it, it, and it really hits home when you say it that when you show up at a town and you don't know anyone, and and you made the point about work mode, where people are into the routine, they're doing their things, they're not off during the week. It's not like they're going to be able to say, oh, I'll go for a ride with you. I think that's a side that probably most people don't look at. They see the romantic uh, side of the travel, but they don't really come down. Of the reality of day-to-day life. And, and probably, now that I've just said that and heard my, my own words, I think that's most people's problem when they're actually looking for a job or planning a career, too. They, they fail to, to realize what the day-to-day life is, that stuff that you're going to be spending most, you know, 80, 90% of your time doing, as opposed to the romantic idea of what you're doing. Sure. So those, those especially those first three things, tend to stop people. Most of the guys who come out and do this don't last long. The ones who get by that and work those things out, once you get that worked out, then it's easier. It's easier for me to travel than it would be to settle down. It's easier, it's cheaper. You know, once you work those out, then you always have it for the rest of your life. You've traveled at times with other people. Um, do you find when you travel with other people, uh, another person with you, that it is more difficult to fit in places? Uh, no, I wouldn't say that. And I don't travel with other guys that often, but once in a while I do. But, um, one of the the things of that, I guess, is that I use these unusual methods that maybe they're not used to, and they're wanting to use normal methods that I'm just not going to do. 
I'm not going to get a hotel room. I'm not going to pay all that money. I'm not going to rush. I've been doing this too long to rush from place to place. My travels are a lot more relaxed. They're easy. They're mostly back roads. But, I mean, I have the ability to come to any town. I can come to your town. Well, you're traveling, so. <laughs> but I can come pretty much to any town and make it my home. Stay there within a few days. I'll have the place wired up, like I call it. I stay on usually in very nice pieces of land, places that are private. I never use campgrounds. And uh, so I either generally have a nice home, figure out how to stay clean. It's part of the, I don't like being dirty. And that's part of the social part, you know. I tell the real homeless people, uh, one of the important aspects of being homeless is to never look at, never let it show, man. <laughs> you know, people right. look at me and they're like, I'm like, I'm homeless. They're like, no, you're not. <laughs> like, you you mean am. houseless, though. You mean yeah, houseless, not homeless. Technically homeless, yeah. Scotty, when you're looking for a place to camp, wh- how do you find it? You, you know, most people, that's one of the biggest problems they have. They're going through places, they don't understand how to look for a place to camp, especially if you're in uh, any sort of built-up area. What do you do for that? You know, I put up a series of videos about how to do that, because people have asked me that so much over the years. How come you get to travel all the time, you don't have to work much? And... Uh, <sighs> And so I put up, you know, how do you find your spots? I've been asked that a lot. I got a series of videos called Gypsy Cribs. And um, with new guys, I was just doing this with a guy this year. I had a guy come with me for a while. And I would stand him at the road, and I'm looking at where we're going to stay. And I'd ask him, what do you see? And they'll tell me, well, you know, I see these trees, and I see, you know, I see flowers growing over there, and blah, blah, blah. And I'll say, okay, well, now let me tell you what I see. I see this road here has got weeds growing up down the middle of it. Nobody's gone back there much. I see that there's really no tire tracks, no recent ones to speak of. If there is, people don't go back there much. I see an old um, mailbox sitting here that's beat up. tells me that there's a good chance there's an old abandoned house back there. I see that it's a place where nobody goes too much. I see that there's trees here that will give us... um, shelter from the wind, and also keep us hidden. The main thing is to, you know, is to be hidden. And uh, that's what I see, right? And I did a series of videos, and some of them I'm standing in the middle of the city, and you're, I'm standing in the traffic, and as I pan the camera around, I show you the road, and then I walk down it, and you see that it just goes to a forgotten place. There's forgotten places all over the place, and uh, people don't notice them until they start using them. I never did. And then I'll have guys travel with me for a while, and we'll be riding down the road. They'll pull up next to me, and they'll say, look over there. I could live over there. (laughs) 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 And then uh, they start to see them. You start to notice these places, Ben. Do you ever get caught or or kicked out of these places? Oh, there's a big one. People are always afraid that, you know, sleeping out on the land that you were born to is a crime, and you're going to do 20 years in prison with some guy named Bubba. You know, <laughs> but it's just not really a crime. Uh, the cops hassle me very, very infrequently. I've become much better at finding good places. I just got tired of staying in real lousy places where I didn't sleep good. So now I, I'll take the time to find really good spots. And uh, it's just not. Now, mostly, if you run across a guy on a bike off by himself over in the woods somewhere while you're walking your dog, you're probably just going to walk by him or you're going to maybe even talk to him a while. Sometimes people will talk to me. Right? So, I mean, you know, I try to stay out of residential areas away from people's families and their homes because it'll make them nervous, of course. You know, I I also, in that series of videos, I show my camps. I go in in that, in those Gypsy Cribs videos. It's a series because I don't have the ability to cut and paste film. (laughs) So I had to shoot the whole thing at one time and put it up by itself. (laughs) But it shows mostly all that. And you'll see that the camps tend to be different. One of them, I'm in a campground, and I take you out in Ohio, and I take you at a rally, a uh, vintage thing, and I, and I take you into the campground, and you see where everybody's got their tents sitting right out. It's 100 degrees out there, and then I walk you into the woods and show you mine, and you see that it's very different. It's much more comfortable, much more comfortable. So would you say a lot of it is just, just actually finding a spot like that and, and having the balls to just camp there and just say, sure. I'm not worried about it? That's what it is, you know. Uh, the definition of courage is to feel the fear and do it anyway. Once in a while, I get in a place where I'm nervous, but after I stay there a couple of days, 
I'm like, <laughs> I start thinking it's like my own place. Some guy wanders by, and I'm like, hey, dude, what are you doing out here? <laughs> I just talk to him. And it, on the rare, very, very rare occasions anymore when I do talk to the cops, they're like, what are you doing? Maybe they come off a little hard. They check my paperwork. They see I'm clean. I'm not drunk. You know, I have a clean record. Um, and then their, their attitude changes. Then they're like, what are you doing? I'm like, well, I'm traveling. They're looking at the bike. You know, I'm, I'm doing it the economy when I'm sleeping here. Most of the time, they let me stay. Once in a while, I've had them tell me where I can go. They're like, you can't stay here, man. we got a complaint, and you're going to have to. But you can go stay over by that river. <laughs> they tell me how to get there. You mentioned um, getting free showers. What is the secret to getting free showers? Like, I think most of us is, who do any sort of traveling by motorcycle, we've learned a lot of different ways to wash and, and stay clean. But, I mean, there's nothing like that beautiful shower. How is it you manage to get a free shower from a truck stop? Well, from a truck stop, well, truck stops... Uh, I use truck stops a lot. I never use rest areas. I gave them up years ago. Truck stops almost like a free campground. Um, they offer a TV room. I use the TAs and the Flying J's mostly because they have they have TV rooms. They have lounges I can use. But um, and they, you know, truckers tend to be kind of lonely guys, friendly guys, because they're they spend too much time alone in those metal boxes. <laughs> so, anyways. If you're buying 50 gallons of fuel or more, you get a free shower. And so a lot of these guys have extra shower tickets. So I just asked somebody for one. And uh, here's what it's about, man. It's imperative that they see your motorcycle. I will ride up to the pumps with my packed-up bike, and I'll ask them, or I'll park my bike between the pumps and the fuel desk where they got to pay for their gas, and I'll get a cup of coffee and sit there and ask them if they come by. Because truck stops have a tendency to attract bums, homeless people, and the truckers, and everybody's a little weary of those. But since you've got a bike and you're packed up and you're on the road, they understand that. And they and it usually doesn't take long at all for them to hand you a shower ticket. The main thing is they need to see your bike, see that you're not a bum. That changes everything. There's, there's a bunch of other things with living on the road that I'm sure is, is no problem for you now. But um, a lot of people ask about what do you do for your insurance and your address? Oh, I don't have an address. Insurance is $61 a year. I just pay that. I have a Montana license plate because they're permanent. I just got back from Montana. I have a license for this bike. They give you permanent plates. I don't live in any state, so I might as well tag in the one that gives me the best deal, right? It's 85 bucks, and it's good for life, as long as I own this bike. But when you get pulled over, they check your driver's license. Your driver's license has your address on it. What do you do for an address? Well, they ask me if that's a current address. I tell them no. <laughs> <laughs> I give him the address of a friend of mine. You know, I got a friend or two that'll handle that stuff for me. I give him that address. I use a friend's address if they have to send me anything. So, what about safety on the road? Um, how do you how do you keep yourself safe? I mean, especially when you're camping in different spots that are not approved camping areas or areas that may be what others would consider sketchy. You know. I read somewhere, and I believe this too, that the unknown is the cause of all fear. And so when I'm doing something that's new, it's always going to be scary. It doesn't matter. I used to freak out when I would, I used to take trips out of, out of San Diego and just going over to Arizona. I'd go there for a week or two. And I tell myself, you know, I'm leaving in two weeks or a week and a half, and I'm going over to Arizona and ride around and go to this hot springs or whatever it is. And, uh, as the time got closer, I'd get that fear talking in my head, man. And I'm very familiar with this demon. And it would say, because fear always, it always tries, first tries to use the weapon of deceit against me. And uh, if you begin to really look, I think you can see that fear dominates life. And uh, it would tell me, as the time got closer, it would say, maybe you shouldn't go. Maybe you don't have enough money. Maybe your bike's not in a good enough shape, right? Uh, something could happen. It isn't the responsible thing. That's always one of its favorites, right? Like going out to enjoy the life God gave me is one of the most responsible things I can do with it, right? <laughs> not to mention one of the greatest gifts I can give him. Don't get me wrong, I'm not religious, man. <laughs> anyway, um, it would say, you know you're not going to have a good time anyway. You know, like it's been there, and it knows, right? <laughs> like it already knows what's going to happen. This is the guy talking inside mm -hmm. of my head. And uh, there's, there was a couple times that that stopped me or slowed me down, even stopped me a couple times. That was unacceptable. What I began to do was I began to say, I'm going to leave it on this day regardless. And as it started talking to me, if you look, it would be the voice of reason. 
I was just talking with a woman who wanted to travel, and we were getting into this. She said, that never happens to me. And as we talked, she was like, oh, my God, it stops me from doing everything, as we began to talk about it. She talked about how she'd hit the door a few times and turned around. She's older. She's in a position now to start traveling. Anyways, so that was unacceptable to me. So I would say, this is, this is the day that I'm leaving on this date. And when time got closer, it would start talking. And, and I would say, look, man, shut up, please. But talk if you must. Either way, the decision was made last two weeks ago. Um, it's no longer yours or mine. And sometimes I'd leave with my knees tight against the gas tank, freaking out, man. And um, three hours out, I'd begin to relax. Three days later, I'd be like, this is great. Why don't I do this more often? You see what I'm saying? And so that little bastard, he really hurts me at the Mexican border. He hits me there when I cross. Because the rest of the world's busy trying to scare me anyway. You know, I spend time. I go down there for months. Because it's warm. It's where the sun goes. So he's been a battle with him. And so the unknown is the cause of all fear. A guy just kind of to answer your question. A guy just hit me on Facebook the other day. And he said, look, while you're broken down, you're not putting a lot of stuff on Facebook. Why don't you tell us some of your danger stories? And I, and I had to write him back. Drifter life isn't any more dangerous than staying home. I don't really have any of them stories to tell. It's not. You're just thinking it is. I had to know. 21 years of doing this, it's not. It's not any more dangerous than staying home. And it's just that little guy in the back of the head who says it is, because it's the unknown. But once the unknown becomes the known, it ain't scary anymore, right? And think about it, Jim. You go to a new job, even if you know the material, it's a little nerve-wracking until you become comfortable there. Now, I'm talking about when you get a new job. You're going to a new job. You ain't never worked there before. There's always anticipation, like the first day of school when you were a kid. There's always fear. I had a guy from a magazine once come do an interview on me. I was crossing the border into Mexico. And he came to my place and hung out where I was staying and hung out and uh, recorded me. And he, I told him, I said, yeah, I'm scared to death. And he was like, oh, what are you afraid of, man? He'd give me all this crap. And most of the guys that do that irritate me because most of them are guys who haven't stepped out of their comfort zone in so long. They haven't done anything new in so long that they haven't had to deal with this demon. And uh, so I crossed the border and went in. Later, he planned a trip to Colorado. His bike, his motorcycle trip, his bike had 30,000 miles on it, so it was too old, so he rented a new one. His friends backed out, so he didn't go. They're going to Colorado, man. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, I probably wouldn't even change my oil for that trip. <laughs> if my friends backed out, I'd go without them, you know. So most of the time, guys deny that kind of fear. And to deny that demon is to, is to lose the battle by default. That's my experience with it, is to lose the battle by default, to become aware of him. When I talk with men who've done great things, they speak openly with me of their fears. They almost always do. So to deny it is to lose the battle by default. So he stops a lot of people from doing what the dreams that they want to do. So what you're saying is, uh, I'm not asking the right question. Well, I'm asking about how do you keep yourself safe, and what you're saying is that it's not. That's not the question, really. Is the question is how do you deal with your fear of something that isn't there? Yeah, this isn't any more dangerous than staying home. Most people buy five miles from their house. I've never had anything. I don't, you know, I don't carry a gun. I talk a lot about following your heart, Jim. Following the call of your heart, man, which may seem a little windy, but I talk a lot about it. And what it really amounts to is taking note of the things that you love doing that really let you dig and and then making an effort to do more of that and taking note of the things that really don't work for you and trying to, to minimize them, <laughs> right? Following your heart to whatever call it goes to. If I would have stayed a roofing contractor for the rest of my life, man, I would have missed the boat. You've made several references to home. Um, you've said something about you know being at home and, and people coming to your home. What does home mean to you? How do you describe home? Me? At this time, it's my camp. Back then, it was my house, you know. I live in camp. It's just wherever you are, that is home. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it totally is. Uh, you probably cut this out. I was just going to say, like, credit cards. You guys see these advertisements on TV, and they're talking about you can get credit, and you can live better, and you can um, uh, take vacations, and they show people doing wonderful things. But the thing they don't tell you, which is, is if you spend tomorrow's money today, when tomorrow gets here, 
you're not going to have any money and you're still going to be working because that was tomorrow's money. <laughs> One that got me was there was an ad running on the, on the radio for a long time uh, where we were at the time. And um, the ad was, it was for Mother's Day and it said, don't pay for 14 months. <laughs> so you're going to buy something for your mother. And then in, there's going to be another Mother's Day that you're going to have to buy something for. And then two months later, you're just going to start to make a payment <laughs> on what you bought for two months. It's ridiculous if you think about it. Like, I don't know. I'm not big on credit. I have friends who make money with it, you know. Um, so anyways, but what I wanted to say about that faith thing was I started this thing on faith. I had to follow my heart, man. I had to. And I started not having any idea what I was doing. I didn't know anybody else who'd ever lived on a bike. I, all I knew was that my, my, my heart, my insides were calling me to this. When I got out there is when I felt right. That's, a, that's just the place I wanted to be. I started to hate coming home, then I started hating being home, man. And I just couldn't stand going back there anymore. And so I didn't know anything about what I was doing, and I traveled on blind faith. I set off. One of the, turning, one of the changing years was, for, for a year or two, I was working the winter, save money, travel in the summer. Well, one summer came, and I didn't have any money. I had $500. Actually, I left with 200 I made 300 in Arizona on my way out. Because I'm from California, right? which I haven't been to there in years. But, and uh, I looked up, and I said, okay, man. I said, uh, my heart's calling me to do this thing. And, uh, and uh, you know my situation. I said, I'm going to take off on blind faith this year. I was very inspired by the Peace Pilgrim. I don't know if you heard of her. She's, there's a book written about her. She can be Googled. She traveled for 27 years on blind faith. And uh, I was inspired by her. And I said, um, I'm going to take off on blind faith this year because I'm going to Florida. I was going to Florida. I didn't have enough money to get back. And I'm like, um, I'm scared. I'm scared. I said, I'm going to go on blind faith, man. We're going to see if you can keep a man on a motorcycle going across this big country. And I took off, man. And I traveled for nine months. I went to Florida. I spent a couple months there because it was early in the year. I ended up in Canada. You know, somebody gave me work in Canada. I mean, I didn't even ask for it. I can't work up there. I'm not legal up there. A guy needed his house roofed. <laughs> and I was just talking. He found out I was a roofer. And I didn't even know how to bid it because I'm using your money, right? And, uh, and I traveled for nine months. And I left California with 500, and I got back with 550. Now I ain't saying I didn't get low, but I never ran out. And something changed in me that year. You know, it's hard to follow your heart because you're gonna have to do it on some kind of blind faith, and whatever it is to you, whatever that means to you, man, you're gonna have to trust that things will be okay because we're all afraid that we're gonna become destitute and all that stuff, you know. And that didn't happen. <clears throat> And so I began, and as time went on, I learned how to do this. You learn to dance by dancing, not by thinking about how you're going to dance, right? So I learned road life by being out here. And now it's easy to me, man. It's easy. People travel with me most of the time. They're like, yeah, it's easy. And that was Scotty Carricks, who's been living off his motorcycle for the last 21 years. And you can find out more about Scotty by dropping by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com. And look at this episode, show notes, and you'll find links in there and some photographs and some video of Scotty and um, his way of life. It's really interesting. You'll probably want to look up a little bit more on this. Stick around, because coming up, we've got Brett Tax, who's going to talk about adventure motorcycle boots, whether you need them or whether you don't, and a whole lot more. Brett Tax is a head instructor at Puget Sound Safety, and he handles the off-road training there, and he certainly knows a thing or two when it comes to footwear for riding your adventure motorcycle off-road. And here I'm speaking with Brett about Adventure motorcycle boots, and, and first and foremost, whether we need them or whether we don't, whether your hiking boots will suffice. Well, today we're going to talk about something that, um, well, maybe you haven't put a lot of thought into, but you're using them all the time, your feet. And we're going to talk about the footwear that you're using, uh, maybe as opposed to the footwear that you should be using. I have Brett Tax from Puget Sound Safety, who is an expert in rider training. And certainly when it comes to rider training, footwear has to uh, be a big part of that. Brett, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. 
I'm glad you have me back. I'm I'm happy to be here. Well, I certainly appreciate you coming on and talking about this because I, I don't know. Maybe it's just me and the in the crowd that I hang with. But um, there's a lot of people who who wear hiking boots. And, and let's just jump right in. I'm going to throw it out there and and ask you, um, what's your view on hiking boots and oof, and running shoes? Really, do we need these great big adventure boots that they're selling? Uh, to to keep the answer simple, absolutely, we need those boots. Um, when when we do the off-road school and when we do our adventure training, that's the uh, the number one concern. And when people end up with injuries, that's the number one place they end up with it is at the ankles and at the feet. So we're talking about safety then for your foot. What is it about the the hiking boot, for instance, that just doesn't cut it compared to a proper adventure boot? Well, I'll tell you what. Let's back it up just a moment because you know, safety is great. But let's take it right back to a comfort standpoint. And when we walk, we're thinking, you know, the hiking boots or the, you know, the softer sole boots are far more comfortable. But what we don't realize is when we're riding, they become far less comfortable. And they don't allow you to lock into the bike. And because the bottom of the boots are very flexible, it means when you stand up on the peg, your foot wraps around the foot peg and you end up very fatigued very quickly. It also means that you can't move around uh, on the peg as, as easily as having a heavy sole boot. And most people don't like it just because they don't, they're not accustomed to having less sensation at the foot. But the comfort factor is, is far increased, uh, both in confidence and just fatigue level, just by having those heavier boots. I think a lot of people, though, that I talk to about footwear, a lot of people say to me that they prefer wearing the hiking boots because when they get off the bike and they want to go for a hike down a trail or something, they don't want to go through the, the hassle of carrying two sets of boots. And, and that's certainly a, a fair argument. Again, I think a lot of it just has to do with what you're accustomed to, uh, just kind of as a relation, when I was in the fire department, we had to do everything with these big heavy gloves that protect us from flame. And of course, you can't feel anything, any of your nozzles, your 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 breathing devices or anything. And after a while, it becomes just normal. When we first start skiing or snowboarding, uh, walking around in the boots is nearly impossible. But after a while, it just becomes normal. And off-road boots are, are very much the same thing. When I first, my first trip that I wore full motocross boots for was down in New Mexico and it was a set of Tech Sevens, which are pretty pretty significant boot. And when I left, I couldn't use my controls. I felt like I couldn't walk around. By the time I got home, they felt just like a pair of tennis shoes to me. I'd become so accustomed to them. And we had done a lot of walking and hiking. And and there's other uh, boot options with even more flex built into them, like the the CDs that have hinged ankles. And they're not the only ones. Fox does the same thing. There's a lot of options out there for the comfort. So in a way, it's sort of like a helmet. I mean, a helmet is not a comfortable thing. The first time you put on a helmet, it seems ridiculously um, bulky, uh, to say the least. It's, it's, it uh, has loads of blind spots. It just sort of limits your vision, I guess, is, is what I'm trying to say. It doesn't feel right, but after you get used to wearing it, it becomes, I mean, you, you feel odd without it. You know, it's the same thing like the helmet, like you said, the, you know, the hearing. You, you, can't, you feel like you can't hear, and then after a while, you realize... You hear better with a quiet helmet, even though when you first put it on in a room, you feel more muted. And boots are the same way. When you start realizing you can walk in better on the bike and you have less fatigue, and then once you become more accustomed to them walking around, of course, they take some considerable amount of time for break-in. The, it just sort of it changes the whole appeal. And in fact, for me, it increases the, the experience. And it doesn't take much to carry a pair of sandals or a pair of slip-ons with you. So we've got the comfort fact, and I think it's an excellent point that I didn't think of is the, the fact that it's supporting your foot when you're standing in the pegs, because I certainly know that um, when I'm standing in hiking boots, for instance, they, they do tend to wrap on the pegs and you can certainly feel them after a while. Now, talking about protection, what does a, a proper adventure boot do for us for protection? Well, starting with that sole that increases our comfort, it protects you from hyperextension of the foot. There was a, one particular company, I won't name the boot or the brand, well, one particular boot company that put out a boot many years ago targeting dual sport riders and venture riders, and they had to pull the boot off the market because uh, people were breaking their their toes. What they were catching it was hyperextending the foot and, and breaking the toes, and they didn't have a full shank all the way through because, again, they were aiming towards that comfort factor. They were trying to make a boot with a little more flex so people really liked it. But unfortunately, they were using them like dirt bike boots, and they ended up, you know, again, with significant injuries. 
So having that steel shank on that bottom, having that very solid platform is the first protection from an injury. The, the second thing to look at is, uh, is the ankle protection, obviously, where they have armor and support. Many of them have a back strap on the back of the foot. So again, you don't end up with these hyperextension injuries. You have shin protection, you have very armored toe boxes. They're just, there's a lot to these besides just a heavy boot. And what should we be looking for when we're shopping for a boot? Well, let's see. First thing uh, is, you know, lay out your budget. You know, know what your maximum spending is. So you're not looking at things, um, you know, well below or well over what you can afford. And and certainly I would think, you know, double what you think you should spend on a boot. If you want to spend $100, at least put 200 on the table. Most boots, uh, for a decent boot, you're going to start in the two and a half range and go up to about five to 600 for the high-end stuff. So just like helmets. Uh, really think a helmet is about the same price you spend on helmets where you're going to end up on a boot. Look for uh, adjustability. Uh, as adventure riders, we have a tendency to like to wear our clothing over our boots. And of course, if we're in foul weather, we don't want to have things down inside our boots. So uh, a lot of times I look at the shin size to make sure it fits around your calf and your shin. But also I bring my riding gear with me to make sure that my riding gear can fit over the top of the boot. Uh, ease of buckles can make a big difference. You buy a cheap boot, but it can be very difficult to get on and off. You, the more difficult it is to use, the less likely you are to use it. And then um, also just you know looking at reviews and seeing what long-term users of the boots have to say about longevity of the boot and break-in and comfort. Brett, we talked earlier uh, about um, the importance of the boot, and, and I really want to have that. How important is it to wear adventure boots as opposed to any sort of other footwear? As a dirt rider, I put boots number one on the list. I put helmets number two, and then I work my way down from there. Just because the, the possibility of injury to a foot is the greatest. Anytime you slip, people have a tendency to put their foot down. If you wedge it between a rock, if you step off the, the bike and roll your ankle, if you're riding along and you catch a stump or a log that's obscured or hidden by a branch or grass, the chance of pulling your foot off the peg or bending it around the peg or it, the injury is just so easy to injure your feet that it really has to go number one. And then, you know, helmets drop number two. Yeah, that just sort of shocks me. I didn't expect to hear that at all. And and I guess it's just because, yeah, our, our feet are very vulnerable, aren't they? They're, they're right down there, and especially you get a heavy adventure bike, and you're looking at a lot of weight, a lot of inertia that's going to push your foot wherever the, the weight of the bike wants to go. And, you know, the crazy thing is, if you watch almost any adventure school, including ours, or and even dual sport riders come in, we're, we're stuck with this dilemma of, of always being halfway there and meaning that we have a, a bike that can go in the dirt but isn't dedicated like a dirt bike we have a bike that can go on the street but isn't dedicated to the street and our gear is very much the same thing and it's crazy to see riders come in who are primarily street riders coming into the dirt and they buy these five six hundred pound bikes and they show up in street boots and street riding gear and street helmets because that's what they know and when you turn around and you see guys riding around on 200-pound dirt bikes and they have full armored boots and they're wearing chest protectors and they have, you know, like Liette neck braces and lightweight helmets and, you know, all of this protection and they're on bikes dedicated to riding in the dirt. They have tires that are dedicated to riding in that environment and yet they're far more protected than riders with less experience and three times as much weight. But that brings up a good point that I think some people will say, you know, I ride on 95% of the time uh, on my trip on the road and only 5% in, this, in some dirt. Should they be wearing proper boots as well? That's a decision each of us have to come to on our own. I've certainly done trips where I've worn a, a heavy street riding boot because I was primarily on the street. And maybe I go up to a an old ghost town or a, a mine or a campground and I make that choice and I take that risk and other times uh, you know I wear full-on gear depending where I go and how extreme it's going to be just like when we choose to wear you know full riding gear or we go down to the store in a pair of jeans we all know we shouldn't but we do and boots are the same in reality 
of course we should be wearing their boots um, all the time, but that's not that's not what we're going to do. So, but it is good to stop and think about it and know if you are going to push your limits, if you are going to try new things, if you are going on a trip that's primarily off-road or challenging, you should really reassess the importance of riding boots. What about when choosing the boot? Um, you know, there, some are waterproof, some are not. Um, how important is a waterproof adventure boot? I, you know, years ago, I really worked at trying to get waterproof boots for the street. And I certainly, when I first came into dirt, I thought about that for, for the off-road. And I'm not really a big fan any longer, only because the, you know, the Gore-Tex and other materials they use in boots it fail so quickly. Uh, unfortunately, what causes Gore-Tex and these other permeable membranes to, to fail are sweat and dirt, primarily. And of course, our feet sweat and we're riding in dirt. The other thing that causes them to fail is repetitive uh, flexing in one particular you know position. So on a boot where it's in the boot, you end up with these joints or these bending points. And so they have very quick failure. Then you end up with very sweaty feet very quickly. So for me, I'm pretty much a fan of uh, bringing Gore-Tex socks if I'm off-road. Uh, when I travel, I carry boot, uh, boot gaiters now, and I waterproof regular leather boots. And that's my choice now. Again, everybody has their own, their own theory behind that. I don't understand why they don't make them so they're removable. So, you know, you could, you could have the liner go in and sort of stick in with Velcro or, or whatever. I mean, we don't want it coming out with our foot, but make it so that somehow you can remove it and dry it out. Well, like uh, like a ski boot yeah. or a snowboard boot. Well, some of the dirt bike boots do that. You know, if you get like the 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 Tech Tens, the Alpen Stars, which are their high end, they have a booty. So when you take them off, you pull the booty out, and you can dry them and replace them and whatever you need. What makes that boot not suitable for road? The same thing that everybody will complain about with all the boots. They can't feel anything. They're going to get on, and they can't feel their controls. And so they say, well, I can't fill the brakes. Well, of course you can't. Figure it out. You know, well, I can't shift. Well, then adjust your shift, you know, your shift lever. When I wear my street boots primarily, I move my shift lever down because you have a very thin toe box. That's something I didn't mention either. But you adjust your, your lever up, and what you'll do is to downshift. You tap the lever, and then you can slide your foot underneath the lever. And then to raise it, rather than lifting with your toe like you do for the street, you actually rock your boot back. And you let the bulk of the boot and the stiffness of the boot actually make the shift for you. As opposed to lifting with your toes. Exactly. Because you have no toe. You can't lift the toe because we bought a boot with a stiff toe box and a, a, a sole that won't flex. That's the whole point. And how to ride with a, a pure dirt bike boot, there is an adjustment period and there is a change. You know, just like when you go from riding your, your street bike to your adventure bike or you go from riding on pavement to dirt, you make adjustments. And the same thing wearing proper riding gear. Put the boot on, adjust your controls so you can actually function properly with the proper gear on. And like I said, tap down to downshift and then to upshift, you can slide your, your thin toe box uh, dirt boot underneath it and then rock your leg back and it'll actually shift for you. No effort. And how about type of material? I mean, they've got leather and the plastic uh, ones out there. I see a lot with plastic buckles as well, which is probably something we should talk about. So what sort of materials should we be looking at? You know, I, you know, we all like to think that leather is the absolute best. And unfortunately, I'm not an expert, but I do know when I talk to CD, uh, the reps and, and the, the, a lot of the manufacturers, they're firm believers that the synthetic materials are perform far better than the actual leather. A lot of the reasons are the consistency of the material they can uh, manage, and they can actually make those materials more resistant to failure and aging. So they're, they're definitely um, big advocates of, of the man-made materials, and I haven't seen anything to, you know, to argue that point at all. Certainly my street boots, I have uh, quite a few pairs that are leather, and most of my off-road boots are made primarily out of synthetics. Is there anything in particular that we should avoid when looking for proper adventure boots? I would say the biggest thing is watch out for the names. You know, there's, uh, again, there's uh, many of the boots that come out that are targeting adventure riders, and they're basically doctored up street boots. They put a, a plastic shin guard on them, and they put some really cool-looking buckles on them, and they look like 
they look just like a dirt boot. In fact, you know, since I've I've dropped a few names already, CD is one of those. They have a CD Adventure that's very popular in the adventure crowd. And then you have the CD Crossfire, which is a hardcore uh, off-road motorcycle boot. If you look at them, they both have articulated heels. They both have, you know, buckle clasp. They both have, you know, shins. But the Adventure Boot's more popular because it's flexible, it's comfortable, and you can walk in it. And they come waterproof as an option. And these are all things that street riders rate very highly. When you look at the CD website, you'll actually see that the Adventure Boot is not listed under their off-road boots. It's listed under their street boots. And that's because it doesn't actually have a proper shank and sole for off-road use. Most of the things they put on it are to draw appeal. And they're not the only one uh, that does that. There's many brands, if you look at them and break them down, and if you can grab the boot and grab the toe and grab the heel and fold the boot at the, at the sole, it doesn't have a strong enough shank for off-road use. That's a street boot. So let's go through a checklist of what I want to look for when I'm looking for an adventure boot, a boot that I'm going to ride primarily on the street with some off-roading uh, in there as well, but something that will sort of do me for my trip, my adventure trip that I'm doing. So my primaries would be, number one is the sole that we've talked about. So I would grab the boot, make sure I couldn't bend the sole. Um, there's several that meet that category, but they have very weak um, ankle support, but the sole would be my first goal. The, the toe protection, the toe box, I would put less emphasis on if it has a proper sole at the bottom. Uh, the, the buckles I prefer over Velcro or string just because it, it makes a much more secure clasp system. The next thing that would go up the list is flexibility at the ankle and ankle protection. So articulated ankles or some kind of plastic guard over the ankle to keep from hyperextension and from side movement. And then the third thing would be, uh, if I'm just going to keep a minimal list, is does it fit underneath my riding gear? And that means either I buy different riding gear or I buy a different boot. And some of them have adjustable shin plates on them, so you can actually make them a little smaller. Uh, others, you know, they're, uh, they're very focused on the dirt and they have very large, you know, shin plates on them. So it's just, it's just not going to work as well. Do you have some models that you would recommend? Uh, I can only mention the ones I've used personally. Uh, there's uh, there's some others out there that are very good. I know the Fox Instincts are one that some of my instructors use. It's a much larger shin on it, but it's an articulated ankle. Very comfortable boot. It has a plastic toe on it. It doesn't have the the steel tips that'll scar up your motor if you're if you bump into it. It looks more like a a regular boot when it's pulled over your pants, so you don't look like you're walking around with you know ski boots on. The, the CD um, crossfires are also an articulated um, ankle, and they come in black. So again, when you put your pants over the top of them, they look pretty normal as far as the boot goes. And they actually have the adjustable shin plates, so you can make them a little smaller to fit underneath. On more of a budget point, uh, Alpenstar, you know, they have their high-end Tech 10s and Tech 8s that are dirt boots. But if you're a little more budget conscious, they're Tech 7s are a very good off-road boot and more flexible. And their Tech 3s are their kind of their entry-level boot. And they have the newer buckle systems on them that work very well. I know a lot of riders that use that as an adventure boot. That was my first boot. And I still use a Tech 7 actually in my on my dirt bike. So it's a, it's a very, very good boot uh, at a very modest um, entry level. So those are ones that I've used personally or that people around me have used. And again, not saying that these are the best on the market. They're just the ones we chose, and I know that they work very well for that use. What we haven't talked about is women. Um, it's a growing segment of adventure riding, and unfortunately, they have a very difficult time finding real dirt boots. So what I would recommend a lot of times for the women is take a look at some of the high-end youth boots. Uh, most of the time, the, the sizing is very similar to a woman's cut where it's a narrower fit and they can get sizes below the the smallest of the men's sizes and they kind of bridge up around that size seven size eight mark um, i know the uh, cd makes a, a set called stingers that are very similar to the crossfires that do fit smaller size feet and there's some others that are out there as well it's it's a little harder to find a high quality boot in the youth category mainly because parents are just more concerned about how much they spend. But um, certainly 
you know, the women need to be aware that there are some choices out there and, and they may want to look um, into that category to see if they can find some stuff that really fits. Excellent tips. I guess I'm going to have to go out and get a pair of boots now. Thanks, Brett. Well, I'm really happy that you invited me back onto Adventure Rider Radio, and I hope that your listeners find the d- discussion we had very useful, very helpful, and I hope uh, you'll invite me back on some other topics. I've been speaking with Brett Tax, who is the head instructor for Puget Sound Safety, and you can find out more about Brett and the programs that he offers by visiting his website, www.pssor.com. This episode is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. Sign up for their e-rider newsletter too at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. And Best Rest Products, home of Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, when you're on the road, or off the road for that matter, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system and can fill a flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA and with a five-year warranty. Check it out at www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. Now, before we wrap things completely up, I want to remind you that we have T-shirts and stickers available now. So if you want an Adventure Rider Radio T-shirt or sticker, uh, drop by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com. Click on the store button. It'll take you there, and you can find a bunch of things that are really cool. And what we're asking you to do with these stickers is, well, maybe get a couple of them because it helps support the show, of course. All the stuff you're buying from the store helps support the show. But take those stickers, stick them on your bike, of course, but also find a remote place to stick them to a, a gas pump a telephone pole something in some odd place something that makes a cool photo take a shot of it send it off to us and you can drop by our website anytime it's open 24 hours go figure have you ever heard of that before a website that's open 24 hours you can click on the comment button and send us your comments and show suggestions you can also go to facebook of course we'd love to hear from you on facebook we have a lot of interaction there and on twitter we are at adv rider radio also, drop by iTunes. Give us a rating on iTunes or Pod Bay FM or wherever else you listen to your podcast at. Make sure you give them a rating and let them know what you think of the show. And special thanks to our co-producer, Elizabeth Martin. Hi, I'm Lawrence Hacking at OverlandAdventureRally.com, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio.